NWP Radio. You're listening to NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP. Two, four, six, eight, ten, eighteen. All you writers, get up and lean. Alina, 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 Whoa! All right. I never in a million years thought I would recall that high school cheer, but after reading "Why We Fly," I was like, I am going to do it. So, welcome everyone. My name is Brian Ripley Crandall, and it's wonderful to be back once again for another episode of The Right Time. I have to say, I am super excited about this show. Another book that I have been raving about to students and teachers this spring is Why We Fly by Kimberly Jones and Geely Siegel. I'm doing flips that they are recording with us today. And I apologize if I offended anyone with my really bad cheerleading, but I am loving this book. So hi, Tanya, how are you doing with your cartwheels and that wonderful handspring of yours? Hi, Brian. It's, as always, an adventure to co-host The Right Time with you. I am not doing any flips or cartwheels these days. I used to be able to do a mean cartwheel, but that was about it. (laughs) More importantly, we are super fortunate to have the authors of Why We Fly in our studio today. And I'm raving with you about this book. I'm also over the moon that we have um, our teacher tonight from the Emerald Coast Writing Project, Charlene Uh, Barger. And I'd like to offer a warm welcome to everyone. I'm really looking forward to your conversation tonight. Yeah, so this is a true story. And we were talking about it in the kind of the the pre-show. The last rendezvous I had in person in the spring of 2019 was a speaking engagement at the North Texas Teen Book Festival, where I was introduced to two incredible women who were at the same festival to discuss their debut novel, I'm Not Dying With You Tonight. It is my pleasure to introduce one of the authors, Geely Siegel, and share what I wanted them to, uh, share exactly why I wanted them to meet the National Writing Project family. And I apologize when I torture names. Geely Siegel grew up in Florida, go Florida, and graduated from Hebrew University and finally decided to call Decatur, Georgia home. By day, she's the chief legal officer of an advertising agency. By night, she's a Cape Crusader. No kidding, just kidding. She wishes she was a cape. I think she could be a cape crusader. I just got these wind up toy cape crusaders. I'm gonna have to send you one so you can have it run across your desk and you could be that wind up cape crusader. Her real not so secret identity is A-U-T-H-O-R, author, all right? She's been writing in one form or another since she wrote her first young adult novel, a Sunfire YA romance fanfic, ah, typed out on an electric typewriter. I remember those. Although she will confess it was titled Claudia, she will neither (laughs) confirm nor deny that any copies still exist. Whatever you do, don't ask her mom if it's in those boxes stored in the closet of her childhood room. No, 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 no. Who let Brian read a book about cheerleading? That's what I want to know. Kim, I have to blame you, I think. I mean, you made this thing and now you've made this thing. It's my great fortune to introduce and meet for the first time the other part of this collaborating duo, Kimberly Jones. Kimberly Jones is a former bookseller and she now hosts the Atlanta chapter of the popular Well-Read Black Girl Book Club, which is actually the reason I want to meet you because I'm so excited about that work. I think that's awesome. 
as well as the infamous viral sensation, the YA Truth or Dare author panel at the Decatur Book Festival. She has worked in film and television with trailblazing figures such as Tyler Perry, Whitney Houston, and Eight Ball and MJG. Currently, in addition to writing YA novels, she's a, a director of feature films and cutting edge diverse web series. She also regularly lectures on working and succeeding in the Atlanta film market. And finally, it is also a great fortune to have with us teacher leader Charlene Barger, or is it Barger? I, she'll let, we'll let her correct it. I'm, th I'm going with Barger, right? As soon as I knew that the authors were willing to discuss why we fly in our program, I reached out to my redheaded, better looking, baton twirling twin in Florida, Dr. Susan James, and asked, who would be perfect for these two divas we're bringing to our show tonight? Boom! Charlene was recommended, and I couldn't be happier. Charlene has taught middle school and high school English for 10 years and, trans and transitioned from a brick and mortar to a virtual setting two years ago. This year, she has had the pleasure of teaching creative writing for the first time. She's been a National Writing Project consultant for four, four years, writing poetry, doing short stories and picture books for as long as she can remember, and she aspires to write YA literature too. She lives in Pace, Florida, with her boyfriend, three children, and a host of animals. We love our animals. When she is not teaching, Charlene spends her time watching movies with her kids, reading the latest young adult novels, and chipping away at piles of manuscript drafts. And now, it's my pleasure to turn the show over to Charlene, who will introduce a writing prompt for tonight's episode. Hi, everybody. I am so excited to be here because I'm a huge fan. I'm so glad Dr. Suze, as we call her, lovingly uh, recommended me. I'm super excited. Um, so for our writing prompt, it's been prom season. I've been seeing the pictures all over Facebook, not of my son because he did not go because, you know, <laughs> I don't mm -hmm. know that he ever will. He's just not the type, but we'll see next year. He has one more chance, but seeing all those dresses and thinking of prom night, um, we'll sort of see at the end prompt why this is our prompt right now. But what I want you to write about is think about that night getting ready for your prom. Um, being a girl, specifically getting ready. So think about what she might be doing, um, how she might look, but also what she's thinking and use those sensory details to maybe show us instead of tell us how she's feeling about what's coming that night. I remember when I asked Kimberly to the prom and she pulled out her lipstick on a Zoom. <laughs> you asked me, Brian, what color would you like me to choose for this prom dance and I said the one in the middle and she applied it on her lips and we've been dancing for the rest of our lives all right we're handing the show over to you this is going to be fun I can't wait to hear the conversation that comes from it Woo -woo. enjoy so my first question for you guys which I guess is the the obvious starter is it's not you know a normal thing to often see two writers working together on a novel and it's really cool so I just wanted to know how you got to that decision and then also in the process of writing, now that you've been doing it for a while with the two books together, what are the disadvantages and the advantages of working as a team to produce a novel? Well, I think this is a great opportunity to talk about bullying and to discuss it as Geely bullied me into being her writing partner. <laughs> I did, I did it. You're all welcome, welcome. 
Uh, yeah, we um, we knew each other through a book club, actually, of uh, grownups who like to read young adult novels. It was uh, run out of the bookshop that Kim was then the manager of. And we knew each other a little bit, but not a ton, like not close enough that we had each other's phone numbers, but we had discovered we had all these things in common, right? We were both single moms. We both worked a day job and wanted to have this creative side hustle. We're both divorced from professional athletes, which is a whole thing. Um, and so the, <clears throat> I've, our first novel was inspired by real events, like our second novel as well. And when I saw the news story about the, um, the incident where a school bus got trapped behind a police barricade in Baltimore during the civil unrest there, I sent the link to Kim and she will tell you to this day, like annoyingly so links are my love language. And it's how I like persuade her to do all of this. I'm like, look at this interesting thing I found. Um, but it was the story of, you know, a black girl and a white girl who are surviving the night in a in civil unrest. And I knew that was not a story I could ever tell by myself. I don't have the lived experience to do that justice. So I went to the bookstore when Kim was on shift because remember I didn't have her phone number and I lurked around the store until she went on break, um, making myself a little bit of a spectacle to the point that the other staff was like, is that lady a problem? And, <laughs> and when she finally went on break, I'm a lawyer by trade, that's my day job. So I had like my bullet points all written out and I was going to like convince her to write this story with me and I got about two bullet points into it and she goes stop right there and I you know all the blood drained out of my face and I was nervous and I thought I'd offended her she hated the idea or hated me and then what she said was you had me at let's write together and I think we've discovered that we're coming up on like seven years of that now so and, and I'm still sending her links and begging her to write with me and I would just like to say, this is the healthiest relationship I have ever been in. So now she is my um, platonic life partner. Um, and so, yeah, and she, we almost had to activate Shirley. So where we live in Decatur, Georgia, there is this legendary um, woman beat cop um, named um, uh, Sergeant Shirley that everybody knows that walks the beat of the square in Decatur and she just like takes care of everybody. I remember somebody stole my car and she like got the car back and gave me a courtesy ride home and she buys like Christmas gifts for kids in the neighborhood. She's just like this amazing officer in our neighborhood and so I, I always kept her on speed dial and she always said if anything ever happens at the shop and I meet her right away don't even worry about calling dispatch, call her cell phone and she'll be there. <laughs> and so when she was lurking around, my staff wanted to call Shirley to come and get her. <laughs> but she survived and did not become a subject of being arrested by Miss Shirley. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I think the biggest advantage to writing together is it has helped us develop a healthy and whole relationship and we lean into each other's strengths and weaknesses. And so I honestly, like people always want to know if there's like drama or like what the issues are. And like, we wish we did have some, we, we keep saying we're going to make up some like salacious make-believe story that we're going to tell when people ask us that. But the truth of the matter is like, we don't disagree. We don't fight. We like, we don't have disagreements. And I know people find that hard to believe after seven years, or we don't really hit walls of like, oh, this would be easier if we could do it this way, because we legitimately accept each other for who we are. I'm kind of a hot mess and Geely knows that and just like loves me for where I'm at, not where she wants me to be. And so we have created systems over the years 
that play to each of our strengths. And so it allows us not really to ignore our weaknesses, but not to be stifled by our weaknesses. And so we're, the beauty is like we're opposites in a lot of ways. Like I am, you know, I, I have to like, I, as, as I ramble on right now, like I am very verbal, like I have to talk things out. I have to hear it. Um, and, and Geely is very like auditory and visual, like she has to hear it and then she has to see it in front of her. And so a lot of times, you know, actually how we write is people wonder if we like share pages or Google doc. We don't, we sit side by side and I like ramble on and lean over her shoulder and talk and she types and she's, I mean, she is just like, such an amazing novelist. She's so good at like the visuals and like, I mean, she could make you smell this lipstick if she wanted to, you know what I mean? But I come from a screenwriting background. So dialogue is my specialty. Like that's, you know, quippy dialogue and, and, and making 16 year olds sound like 16 year olds instead of 40 year olds is what I do. And so we both just do what we're really good at. Geely can describe that room for you and I can tell you what they're saying and we just share space in that way. And so we don't fight because we just like each just get to do what we're good at. That's awesome. And I that, that's a great pair to have. You have those opposites. You can help you out and help each other out and learn from each other. That's awesome. I'm picturing, you know, two students getting together that have putting the strengths and the weaknesses together so they can help each other grow. Okay. So as far as the format of how you've written your two novels, you do keep it not exactly separate, but you have your two different perspectives of your two characters. You sort of switch back and forth. How did you come to that decision to do it that way? And how does that lend itself to the stories? So there, it's different actually. And this is like an interesting fact about writing is your process for every book is not necessarily the same. So for I'm Not Dying With You Tonight, <clears throat> we each took responsibility for one character and their voices are very different based on their lived experience. So originally Kim predominantly took responsibility for Lena and I predominantly took responsibility for Campbell. But of course, by the time we were editing, you know, the girls are in one another's chapter and getting the voice right when they are not, you know, the first person narrator um, was important as well. So we were sitting side by side and editing within each other's chapters by the end of that book. And then for Fly, their voices are not quite as distinctive, right? Their lived experience is a little more similar when they start the story. And so we sat side by side and just wrote it literally together. As Kim said, she's really verbal and I am really visual. And so we sort of have this, this rhythm where we're like talking things out and I'm typing and seeing how it goes and we're, and we're sort of working on it that way. But a lot of times the, the book itself is going to drive your decision as to how you co-author it. And as far as um, this idea of, you know, part of, especially with the first book, taking the two different perspectives is like you were saying to honor, you know, what you might know about this experience and what someone else might know. Um, so as far as being in the writing world and looking up publishers are looking for, you're always seeing the term own voices right now. Um, and so do you, do you feel it's really, you know, important to always um, be writing from a viewpoint that you have experienced? Like, for example, would either you of you, you know, get to a point where you would write from a male perspective or just something you haven't experienced? I just wanted to get into that topic a little bit. 
Well, I think you have to do a, just a, a tad of that in a book, no matter what, right? Because the characters are not monolithic. So like, and why we fly, we have characters who identify as queer. We have, you know, male characters, female characters. So we do it on a, on a micro level all the time. Um, would we do it on a macro level? I don't, I, I, not yet. And the only reason I would say not yet, because we are still broadening the canon. Um, in terms of what's available to the world. And so I would I would hope that 30 years from now, we get to the point where the canon has expanded in a way where I feel like the own voices, um, original intent has manifested itself and that we are looking at, a, at a, you know, and um, Dr. Brianna McDaniel who, wrote hands up always says that the you know the library is infinite it doesn't have to have one of this story and one of that story and so i'm whole i would like to think that in 20 to 30 years we have expanded the canon in a way where if i did want to you know write a story about a, you know a middle-aged man struggling with something that we would be in that space i don't think we're close enough yet to seeing the expansion in the canon that's necessary to take up space from someone who needs to write those voices authentically. Although I do believe I am not one of those people that thinks that people can't write outside. I just am not ready to do that. But I think that if you are going to do that, if you're going to write something that is not own voices, you had best have done the work um, the research, the communication, having the sensitivity readers necessary to make sure that you are adding something to that community's voice and not harming them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the other piece of that, Jacqueline Woodson wrote a beautiful essay about this, right? And, and Melinda Lowe has spoken about this extensively. And I think it's really important if you are considering writing about an experience that is not your own, um, to ask yourself, why am I the person to tell this particular story? And that's not meant to say that you can never tell a story that's not your lived experience, but why am I the person to tell this one? And you sort of have to interrogate that and ask yourself, can I get it right? Can I do this voice justice? Do I know this community well enough to represent it reasonably and plausibly on the page? Am I willing to do the work, as Kim said, to get the, sen the sensitivity and authenticity readers? And am I willing to handle the criticism that will come if I don't do it right, right? Because that's a part of this. If you're going to make that choice, you got to put on your big person pants and, and live with it. Um, and I, like Kim, also don't feel like I'm in a space where I would choose to take that on, particularly where what we're talking about is a marginalized or underserved community whose experience I don't share. I don't feel like I could do that justice. And so, as Kim said, I'm not going to take attempt to take the space from somebody else who should have it on the shelf. I love how you worded that, both of you. That, that was that was great. Um, I just know it's something that's out there so much, and you know, people are talking about it. Okay. Um, so, as far as including, um, you know, you're talking about knowing what you're going to write about. You guys did that too with your, you know, you're researching historical events, right? I heard you were like walking the streets in Georgia to get a feel for the night in the first book. You know, so how do you go about that process, and how does it help you to really have, you know, that background? We, we, we seek out experts. I mean, we like talk to like cheerleaders and cheer coaches. And um, this is not exactly the experience of the Kennesaw State cheerleaders, but something very similar to this happened with the Kennesaw State cheerleaders. And I had a, 
an opportunity at a protest to meet them and like pick their brain and bring those notes back to Geely. And then Geely and I watched, you know, videos of them doing interviews and things like that. And like Geely had a friend who was, you know, was a cheer coach and in cheer and we had them beta read the book and they, we, we thought this was going to be a dynamic cheer team. And we realized we were having them do pretty pedestrian um, stunts and stuff. And she was like, if they're a team at the caliber and what you're saying they are, they would have surpassed this, you know, so long ago, here's more of what they should be working towards. And so we do the work. Um, we jokingly say, even though we write contemporary, we plot like we're writing fantasy. We work really hard on building out that world and making sure that it's accurate and authentic to the space um, in which it exists in. And, and Geely's love language is articles. And so when we're working on a project, I'm a, I already know I'm gonna get 8 million article text messages and emails of articles <laughs> from her of like- but, uh, but, And TikToks, my and current TikToks. one is TikToks. <laughs> Yes, and TikToks and all of that stuff. But you know, I'm I'm a fan of history, and so I love getting on her. Her, you know, she's again. This is another sign of how who we are balances each other out. Like Geely will Geely's an amazing researcher, and she will find all of this stuff. And I I am a you know um, I definitely think of myself as an as a an oratory historian. So I love to retain this stuff because I can, you know, remember it and spout it back and remember the facts of and the times and all of that kind of stuff. And so that's important to us. It's important to us to give these characters a real lived and authentic um, experience. And so we do the, I mean, our, our lesson for today is do the work. You can do whatever it is you want to do, but you gotta, you gotta do the work. Yeah. The other piece of that is because we write contemporary and because we write books that are, you know, inspired by real events. I mean, you, I think people sort of call them issues book, which is a label I don't love, but whatever. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of history that goes into this. These events exist in a historical context. Sometimes it's contemporary historical, sometimes it's, so we have researched a ton of stuff. And in fact, when we speak to students about our current book, our presentation is titled 100 Years of Athlete Activism. And so parts and pieces of what are in here are not a direct story, of course, of John Carlos and Tommy Smith on the podium at the 1968 Olympics, but all of that informs the way that we tell a story about athletes and activists and think about the consequences of what happens when an athlete chooses to stand up for what they believe in. So all of that sort of research and history goes into kind of the vibe of the book, basically. Mm -hmm. Okay, now onto a big topic going on right now, which is banning books, which, oh. you know, has just been wonderful lately. And just to me, just, you know, like we are taking major steps backwards, like in so many other areas right now. Um, so talking to authors, you know, to get your perspective on this now, and specifically if this were to happen to your book, if one of your books was banned, how would, how would you react? I sort of think sometimes, you know, how do authors really feel when that happens to their own book? Is there a mixture, you know, of, of reactions to that? And if you have, you know, any opinions on what you think should be happening and how this might be affecting our kids, you know, in our classrooms. Um, and if you, you know, you have any um, advice on, you know, or ideas of, of where we should go from here. Teachers are, you know, part of this too, obviously. I don't, we have not been banned yet, I, or at least to, to the best of our knowledge that we know of. Um, so I, I, we can't speak to how it actually feels. I mean, I can sort of imagine, right, that it, I think, 
it's sort of devastating, right? There's an immediate sort of knee-jerk desire to be like, well, this is going to sell me more books if it becomes public. But, um, you know, and that is true sometimes, right? But the other side of that is the book is inaccessible to kids at that point in time in certain communities. And that is devastating, right? Because some kid out there needs to read that or wants to read that or will find themselves in its pages. And that's essentially who we write for. So there is this depression that comes with feeling like this is not going to be available to kids who might find what to talk about in here. And we say this all the time, like our books are not morality plays. People mm. make choices that you may agree with. People make choices you may disagree with. You may be critical of the way our characters behave. We present a lot of different perspectives and reactions in particular in the second book to the girl's social act. So I also approach this as a parent because I have three school-aged children and there may be lots of books that my kids are given at school to read that I might not know how I feel about. And I don't think that my role as a parent is to take that out of their hands. Because also, first of all, there is nothing in a YA novel that these children are not being exposed to on TikTok. That's always the thing that I want to like shout at people who are banning books. I'm like, y'all don't think they have YouTube? It's way worse on YouTube. So there, your kids are going to see this. And as a parent, I don't want to take it out of their hands. I want to grapple with it together with them, right? If my kids are reading a book and I'm concerned, I think my role as a parent is to read the book and talk about it at home as well and not to attempt to take it out of the school's or anybody else's hands because really that's just thought policing. Yeah, and it's funny, we we that we know of, we have not found ourselves on any ban list, but I heard word on the street is that there are a couple author get authors trying to put together a database because the truth is none of us even know if we you know we don't know really if we've been banned we could have been banned in some town in like Iowa and we're just completely unaware of it you know what I mean and so I know there's a couple authors trying to put together a database when these lists roll out so that authors are aware when and if they are being banned and although we haven't been banned we have found ourselves as part of the conversation and that there are lots of lists that have been going around saying, hey, if you like these banned books, you should also read these. So because we keep finding ourselves on those lists, I think being banned, unfortunately, may be on the horizon uh, for us. And I agree with Geely. It's like the unfortunate part is like our books are a portal into difficult conversations. And when we've gone to schools and Geely and I have gone to schools that were like, 98% predominantly white. And we have been able to enter into these conversations and allow these kids to do exactly the opposite of what everybody thinks that it does. It has not made those kids feel bad about themselves. They, have, they do not carry the guilt or the burden of their ancestors. What it has done is allowed, it, it nurtures empathy in them. It nurtures empathy in them. And they feel for a group of people who have a different lived experience than they do. And if they have some implicit bias of their own that they need to grapple with, they do it through the lens of the characters in our books so that they don't have to worry about the burden of, you know, I'm, I'm a, and now I'm a bad person because I'm admitting that I have this implicit bias. But truthfully, they can't even control because it's like osmosis through the narrative that we are all living in and our lived experiences. And so don't we want them to grow and be better? I mean, the most revolutionary thing that any of us can do is self-improvement. And so we're stifling that self-improvement by banning these books that allow these kids to enter into these conversations. 
Yeah, I'd say to any teacher, if you, if our book is being challenged in your district and you are a librarian and you want help, reach out to us on social media. Our, we specialize in difficult conversations, right? We specialize, yeah. we have built a, a friendship that enables us to talk about hard things without sort of, without sort of that burden of feeling bad or guilty or angry or whatever it is. We, we're built for it, right? We'll come and help. If you need our help, if you want us to write a statement, reach out to us and we're here to help be advocates because at the end of the day, we're not advocating for our book. We're advocating for the kids in your district. Yeah, and one, just one last thing. When did we get to the point where like we were anti-ignorance? I like ignorance. And here's what I mean when I say by this. I had no idea how much I didn't know about Geely's Jewish identity and that community until I had a real world relationship with her and a brave space in which I could have these conversations with her and admit to my ignorance and grapple with my ignorance and own that and have a trusted friend that I could lean into and say, I apologize for the ignorance that I carry. Please help me to lure learn to grow, to be better, to use the right words, to know how in a, in a difficult moment when we're looking at these bombings and these crazy things that are happening, how to support you, how to love you, how to be there for you in a way that you want me to. And she's done the same for me. And what a disservice we are doing to our kids to expect them to know everything. You don't know everything, baby, and it's okay. And, and the admittance of that does not make you less than. It actually sets you up to be great. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. And the parent, parents don't know everything and teachers don't know everything, but the books are, they're, you know, endless and from so many of those voices. So I totally agree. And I, when I see a list of banned books, I'm thinking those are probably ones that they need more than anything, you know, and they can't, like you're talking about if you're, you know, a kid at a school, 98% white, how are you, you can't go find, they can't go out, you know, go outside their homes and just go find people. Right. You know, exactly. to learn from. Right. But and it may not be safe there. for them to. Right. I mean, we have we are we are permitting this narrative of indoctrination to subsume education, right? Education and indoctrination are not the same thing. And I think we have to sort of push back on this notion that what's happening in schools is indoctrination. It's just education and kids go home and you as a parent also have the opportunity to educate within your own home. And that's sort of really the end of that story. We can't let this become diverted into something that it's not. Right. Now this might, um, this sort of goes to something that you said, I love that you were, you know, inviting teachers to have you, you know, come talk about it. Cause that, that's awesome. Um, I was going to talk about how um, teachers, you know, these days the, the positions were being put in, in so many different ways. And part of it is, you know, banning of books and critical race theory. And I mean, it's just kind of endless right now. So um, we, as, and as laws are changing and I'm in Florida, so you can <laughs> imagine, um, but any, advice or, yeah, it's lovely, or encouragement for teachers who are put in that position, you know, or they feel they have to take those books off their library shelves. Luckily, I'm not in brick and mortar right now, not luckily, but I, you know, I don't have the shelves of books and that's kind of unfortunate. I, I all I can do is recommend books, but it, I would be heartbroken, you know, if I was being told to box up, you know, whatever, getting quote unquote in trouble for sharing, you know, an amazing story 
with kids. So any just words of encouragement or what you think needs to be done in this arena of public education right now to support you know, all children, all teachers of all backgrounds and experiences who need these books. I say beat the system, right? And so how you do that, utilize websites like weneeddiversebooks.org. So if they have eight books that are banned that you can't lose, that you can't use, go on weneeddiversebooks.org and find eight more books that aren't on the list and order them. You know what I mean? And then if it's to the point where you're in one of those places where parents can report you or try to send you to trial for the information um, that you're, you know, that you're giving to their kids, find creative ways to, to still get those, that list and that information, um, those, that list and that information to them um, without jeopardizing yourself. I, you know, teachers are already at an economic disadvantage. I, you know, I'm probably going to get in trouble for saying this, but I'm not asking, I'm not going to ask teachers to risk their job. I'm not going to ask teachers to risk their livelihood. I'm not going to ask them at this point where we're asking them to do this, risk their freedom their literal freedom um, in order, you know, to do these books. But what has to happen is there has to be a coalition and communication between teachers, parents, and grassroots, grassroots lobbyists and grassroots um, activists who are working against this because most of this stuff is not happening at the federal level. It's happening at the state level. And so we have to band together. I was at a protest about a month ago that was a mix of activists, legislators who are against these bills and teachers and who were fighting together. And there were a few lobbyists out there who were saying, hey, I, you know, I have a bill that I just need to get someone to sponsor that's going to reverse this, that's going to prove that this, you know, that all they did was copy and paste it from Florida and they didn't really look at the Georgia constitution. So I can try this in, in court and prove that it's unconstitutional constitutional based on the Georgia constitution. And so we have to get savvy about finding allies. And those allies have to look like attorneys and congresspeople and teachers. And I don't expect all teachers to work at that level. But if you got three or four teachers that are willing to do that, who that kind of thing is their bag, then the rest of the teachers need to start a GoFundMe and support that group as they're working with the lobbyists, the activists, and the legislators that are on their side. And you know, we gotta get as savvy as these GOP lawmakers that are writing these bills, that are getting these policies passed. And teachers need to be making a list of every legislator that signed off on these bills. And when their election days are coming up, we need to remind them all. We need to remind everyone or who are the people, first of all, who sponsored these bills and who are the ones that voted yes on these bills. And we need to get them out because we don't work for them. They work for us. And when election comes up, that's your employee review. And if you suck, we need to unhire you, vote you out and get your tail out of there. I agree with all that. The only other thing I would add, like Kim, I'm empathetic to the position that teachers are in, right? And I, I'm not sitting here saying you need, it can't be all on teachers and librarians to defend this. You have to galvanize your community support. And as Kim said, they're not necessarily all happening at the federal level. And a lot of times they're happening really quietly. So if you are extremely online and you live your life on Twitter, you know about the bill in Florida and you know about Texas and you know about Ohio and you know about all these states. But if you are not extremely online, 
online, the likelihood that you know about this is lower. Like I've talked to actual people in my community who are like, what are you talking about? I have no idea about this Florida don't say gay bill. Um, so it's important to make sure that we're reaching out to people who are really in the communities who may not be as extremely online and saying like, hey, are you aware of what's happening? Because this stuff is happening at the school board. So if you've got a parent in that district who doesn't agree, say, hey, show up at that school board meeting and speak out bring your co because there are coalitions who will come into a community and and get themselves on the school board agenda and talk about these things so yep. when that's happening you pay attention and you get your coalition to come and speak in opposition to it so the community knows the community leaders know that the only voices in the room are not those who are in favor of these bills right that the community is speaking up and saying no way not here Love you guys are getting me revved up. Like I need to leave right now and go. Do <laughs> take? I need to look back at this and take books. Yeah, you're right. We, you know, and and teachers, we we're so we always talk about being so busy and having kids, and we are, but we also need to at least find those few, like you were saying, who will just stand up and you know, for us, for all of us. So I totally. And librarians, like you said, are in such a tough position too, and they they know so much. You know, I just I I admire them so much. Um, okay, so. For my last question, um, switching gears to the kiddos. Um, I was watching another um, interview with you guys that I really enjoyed, where you were talking about not just being an ally, you know, to people of other groups, but being an advocate, which are, no, I'm sorry, being an accomplice. So it's not the word, an accomplice, where you actually stand up and, and do something instead of just, you know, it's nice to be understanding and spend time with them and get to know them, but, um, to really take some action. And I started thinking about, um, you know, you guys have um, a lot of you know, strong beliefs and emotions and you can get it out in your books. You can get it out in your books, out into the world and through your voice, you know, like with your um, video that went viral, Kim, you know, getting out your ideas about um, injustices going on. And so what about kids though? I'm just thinking, I'm picturing kids just feeling so helpless. You know what I mean? Just, you know, just by themselves that their voices don't matter, that they can't really make this change. So if you're speaking to them and we just know so much is, it's always, there's so much going on in their heads that we don't, you know, we don't honor and we don't know, but especially now, you know, especially in these times with everything going on. And um, so all that pent up stuff, but how, how would you tell them to get it out and, and how to get their voice out and to cause change, you know, even at a young age? I would say there are many ways to create change and they don't all look the same, nor do they need to be the same. So some people are frontline activists like Kim and they're out marching in the street and they're lobbying legislatures at the state capitol and they're those boots on the ground frontline activists. But that's not the only way to create change. So if you as a kid aren't comfortable doing that or aren't safe to do that, um, think about the other organizations. Like I call it your wingspan. What are the places and people that you touch and see in a month? For a lot of us, by the way, that might be our faith-based organization. And I am a huge advocate of working in your faith-based organization. I belong to a social justice committee at my synagogue. And one of the things that we do every year is an expungement clinic so that people who have old criminal records that prohibit them from getting jobs, make it harder for them to rent places. We create a space and we staff it with volunteer lawyers so that people can come and get those things wiped clean off their record and have a fresh start. So look at your, what can your 
church youth group, synagogue youth group, mosque youth group do to connect with a community that needs help, to listen to them first and foremost and support them in the way that they're asking to be supported, um, but also sort of have that group of people who can work together to accomplish something. It doesn't all have to be marching in the streets. It can be other things as well. I just second that. Like, it's just, there's so many ways in which you can do that. You can share books. That's one way to do it. I mean, right now, honestly, sharing banned books is a revolutionary act. Set up a little free library in your neighborhood dedicated to banned books. Ooh, that's good. Yeah. Set up, go to your local boys and girls club and offer to create a community library and collect donations of specifically banned books to put in your local boys and girls club library. Love that. That is it's so funny that you say that because my son is, we have one in, in my neighborhood. And I'm trying to get those volunteer hours. So he begrudgingly took it over. And so I'm like thinking now I'm thinking, ooh, let's do all band yeah, books. Dedicated to band idea. books. Oh. Yep. Put a little post on the side, have kid reviewers, right? So kids borrow a book, come back, tack up a note card, what you thought of this band book. I love that idea. It's awesome. This is why, uh-huh, uh-huh, we fly, uh-huh, uh-huh. First of all, can I just say, Brian, uh -huh, no one has ever cheered for us before, and it is- oh, I got another one. Ready for this one? I love it. Yes, do I'm it. I'm not dying for you tonight. I'm not dying for you tonight. Yeah, I'm a, I'm kind of a parrot kind of teacher. I hear things, and I love it. You have no idea that- Behind the scenes on the show, I was going crazy. I'm like, I want in, I want in, I want to hear. I have, I have, to, I have to say something too. We have to send this to schools everywhere so that the kids are seeing this. <laughs> I'd also like to say, I think that if you ever have an opportunity to like play competitive three truths and a lie, the two of you will definitely win. Like that list of things you had in common, I'm like, what? What? We do. That's not even our wild. This is another thing that we do when we talk to kids. Tale. We, first of all, between the two of us, we've worked close to like 35 jobs because wow. um, it took us a while to find where we belonged in life. And some of our jobs are wild. Kim was a professional clown. Wait, can, can we quickly do um, a two truths and a lie of our jobs and see if you guys can get them right? Okay, no. yes. Okay, Geely, go first. Um, I was a professional hula dancer. I served in the infantry and I piloted a helicopter. I think the infantry is the is the lie. The hula dancer is a lie. Charlene, the pilot. <laughs> that's funny. The pilot. That's the lie. In the infantry, that's the lie. I served in the infantry in the Israeli army. Oh, it is. Ah, that's oh, the Israeli great. army. You guys even had a clue. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I was, in fact, a, a hula dancer. Oh, it's this game. Okay. <laughs> All right, Kim. Okay. So I was Pinky the Clown and Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus. I was, I was a florist. And I was the production secretary to Tyler Perry. Oh, shoot. I think you weren't a florist. Hmm. Wait, I, I did it I, wrong. I was like, girl, those are true. <laughs> it's all good. Well, good, because I thought you should be a florist. I feel like you'd be really good at that. So I feel that's good. But I knew the well, other two were true. 
I'm gonna wind us. I'm gonna wind us in just for our teachers out there, and I'm gonna have Charlene. Charlene's gonna do her last prompt. Then we're gonna come back and, and we're gonna be clowns together. But you have one more <laughs> writing prompt to exit this conversation with Charlene, and it's awesome. So we should probably go there. So we're gonna tie this back into the first one, um, and just do the same scene with a different character, different main character getting ready for the prom, but this is our male character getting ready for the prom. So think again of those sensory details and try to get across to us also how he's feeling about going into this night. And then after writing, come back and answer these questions, okay? So we would ask after you finish writing these two versions and you look at them and compare them, did any gender role stereotypes kind of play into this? and how might that affect your writing in the future, kind of thinking about that. So we're talking about perspective as we were with some of Geely's and Kim's writing. That is a great prompt. So we can, we can come back together with everybody after the prompt goes away. We, we wish you a lot of luck writing and share it with us. Um, <laughs> I am, I, First of all, there's a prom scene in Fly. So I'm really excited. Like I really want a teacher to share with us some of their writing. Yes. Awesome. We, um, what you what did, when you all were talking, the one story it, that was triggered for me, and then I'll let Tanya jump in, was um, and towards the final years of my teaching in Louisville, Kentucky, my school was like, if you were out there in the world, you were in my school, and it was kindergarten through 12th grade. And we all knew that, but we got new administration who didn't, didn't like that so much. So a boy wore a dress um, around Halloween time, and she suspended him, which was never an issue for any of us ever. And as a result, three or four boys came to school in prom dresses the next day, and they were suspended. As a result of that, um, I think pretty much the whole high school came, all the boys came in dresses and some of the middle school kids. So much for that. And then it, it, she got lost kind of control of the school and all the, we didn't have buses to our school, parents dropped their kids off. Fathers were driving to school in dresses to drop their kids off, all in protest of some of these ridiculous decisions that um, people think they have to make. And, and I, I know that school, is a, that's kind of a, an outlier, but it was always humbling to me to see that the community stuck together and that L-O-V-E, love, won in the end. And so for all those people who are standing up and doing the good thing on a daily basis, uh, this whole entire show was out for you, including these writers. What is that in your hand? What is that? Can I, can I pitch somebody else's book for you a second? You can pitch anything because then we'll call them and ask them to be on the show. Oh, you totally yes, You totally have to have them on the show. So this is called Does My Body Offend You? It just came out on Tuesday. It is actually by dear friends of ours, um, Maida Cuevas and Marie Marquardt. And it is about, it's also inspired by real events, very similar to the mold of how we write. This is about... Um, a young Latina woman who is punished at school for a dress code violation for not wearing a bra when a white girl who happens to be sort of flat chested um, is not punished for a similar violation and they go off on um, a journey to protest this but it also deals a lot with allies and accomplices and you know family support and communities and it's spectacular it just came out on Tuesday and in fact there is one of the sort of items that they reference is a is a a non-binary person who wants to wear a dress and the school getting up in arms about this. So highly, highly recommend. And in fact, teachers, if you're looking for exercises, I think it would be really fun to like contrast why we fly and does my body offend you and see like in what ways are, are people better or worse accomplices and allies in these two books. So 
cannot, but I cannot recommend this enough. It's delicious and it just came out on Tuesday. What a good word to describe a book. It's cans. I stole it. We steal each other's best lines all the time. <laughs> I, I often I often respond to student work when the line's really good and be like, that was so delicious. I had to read it three times so I could keep tasting it. Mm. <laughs> I love that. That's a great compliment. I would like to thank everyone for this show tonight. I have been um, I've spent a lot of time talking to teachers in every place in the country and it's hard out there. And I think this is the show. I know this is a show I needed. I think this is a show that every teacher is going to need from the um, just glorious friendship and collaboration that you demonstrate to uh, the powerful ways you're thinking about how people can stand up for what they care about and believe in to this beautiful, these beautiful books that you've put in the world. I can't thank you enough for the work you do and for being here with us tonight. So thank you so much. Back at you. I mean, virtual hug to all the teachers out there. You guys are in a rough spot and we love you. And yeah, hang, hang in there. And if you are a teacher and you're listening, we would invite you to join us in communication and collaboration in the teacher studio, the Right Now Teacher Studio, which you can find at studio.nwp.org. Uh, we would invite you to go to the nwp.org website and sign up for our newsletter so that you always know about these shows because this one was incredible. And I say that lots of weeks. Like I'm so excited to talk to the beautiful people working in this space and creating uh, the literature that young people need. So join us again. And again, I want to say thank you to all of you on the show tonight. And um, then I'm going to sign off. You're listening to NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP. W W W W W